Are the remains in the urn in Westminster Abbey really those of the princes in the tower? And how could scientific analysis help answer this question? Whenever I give a talk about the Richard III project, easily the most popular question I get asked afterwards is, what about the princes in the tower? It's also something I'm regularly asked about by members of the press. So I thought I'd do a little podcast about how this project could be carried out if permission were ever given to do so. So let's back up a bit. What is all this about? Okay, so we have to go back to 1483 and the circumstances surrounding how Richard III came to be king. And I'm going to do this briefly because that in itself is a huge story. So I warn you, I am not going to give you an in-depth account. Now then, this is all set during the Wars of the Roses. And this was a series of civil wars in the 15th century that saw two branches of the Plantagenet royal dynasty, Lancaster and York, vying for the crown. Richard was from the House of York, and his elder brother Edward was the Yorkist king, Edward IV. And from the historical records, it appears that Richard and his older brother were quite close despite the 10-year age gap. They certainly went through a lot together. Now, Edward IV caused a political kerfuffle when a few years into his reign, he married a woman in secret. This was Elizabeth Woodville, who was born into a Lancastrian family, she was the widow of a Lancastrian, and already the mother of two. Alongside this, not only had negotiations been going on around Edward IV marrying someone from the European nobility, but Elizabeth's family was not a noble one, and therefore she would not be considered an appropriate partner for a king. Many accounts suggest that there were tensions in the royal court surrounding the Woodville family. This as Elizabeth's family gained power through her marriage to the king, but that Edward IV, by and large, managed to keep a lid on these tensions whilst he was alive. Edward and Elizabeth had a number of children, including, among them, two sons called, just to confuse things further, Edward and Richard. Now, rather unexpectedly, Edward IV took seriously ill in the spring of 1483, aged just 40. But he apparently survived long enough to add codicils to his will, including naming his brother Richard as Lord Protector to help rule the country until his 12-year-old son, who was due to become Edward V, grew up. At the time, the young Edward was, as was often the case with princes destined to become king, being mentored by another family member, in this case, one of his other uncles, Elizabeth Woodville's brother, Antony, Earl Rivers, at Ludlow Castle in Shropshire. Edward IV died on April the 9th, and Richard is at one of his estates in the north of England when he hears of Edward's death some days later. He writes to Queen Elizabeth, assuring her of his fealty to his nephew, and then to the council regarding his position as Lord Protector. And this is where things get rather murky. There seems to be a lot of politics going on with many of the council, especially Edward IV's best friend, Lord Hastings, being concerned about a Woodville-dominated government. So while there is no evidence that Richard did not get along with the Woodvilles, they don't seem to have been particularly close. 
Lord Hastings writes to Richard and advises him to bring a well-armed retinue to London as soon as possible. In the meantime, the young Edward, Richard's nephew, is informed of his father's death and is due to be brought to London for his coronation by Earl Rivers. With them will be Edward V's half-brother, Sir Richard Grey, who was one of Elizabeth Woodville's sons from her first marriage. Richard makes an oath of fealty to his nephew as the new king, and as he was going to be making his way to London, he contacts Rivers and Grey and suggests they all converge at Northampton on April the 29th, before heading into London together for Edward's coronation, scheduled for May the 4th. Again, here is where things get a bit murky. It seems that Rivers and Grey do not stop in Northampton to wait for Richard, and Richard arrives in Northampton to find that they've travelled on to Stony Stratford, several miles closer to London. Some of Edward's party, including Anthony Woodville and Richard Grey, head back to Northampton, and the following day Richard has them taken prisoner and sent north. Elizabeth Woodville, hearing of this, goes into sanctuary at Westminster with her younger son Richard and her other children. Richard then accompanies young Edward to London, and his coronation is postponed until June the 22nd. Richard is confirmed as protector, and meanwhile, Edward eventually takes up residence in the royal apartments in the Tower of London, the usual place for royal family members to lodge before their coronation. A number of things now happen very close together. Richard calls a subgroup of the council together, accuses some of them of plotting against him, including Edward IV's best friend, Lord Hastings, and has him taken outside and executed without trial, and a handful of others are imprisoned. A few days after that, a number of councillors go to see Elizabeth Woodville in sanctuary, and Edward's younger brother, Richard of Shrewsbury, aged about nine, comes out of sanctuary and joins Edward in the royal apartments in the tower. This to keep him company and to be with him for the coronation. The coronation of Edward is then put back to November. On the day that Edward was due to be crowned, June the 22nd, crowds gather to hear a sermon by a popular theologian, Ralph Shaw, who was the brother of the Mayor of London. He proclaimed that Edward IV was illegitimate. As well as this, at this time, there are claims that Edward's marriage to Elizabeth Woodville also wasn't legitimate, so their children didn't have a claim to the throne. Now, this was not new. The story that Edward IV was illegitimate was that Edward and Richard's mum had had a relationship with an English archer and that Edward was the result of that. This was a rumour that not only circulated in this country, but was also well known in Europe for many years. The other was that Edward IV had already been pre-contracted in marriage to a woman called Lady Eleanor Butler. A pre-contract in those days precluded marriage to another person and meant that his marriage to Elizabeth Woodville was illegitimate, and therefore none of their children could make a claim to the throne. Allies of Richard then began to make the case for him as rightful heir to the throne, and eventually high-ranking officials and noblemen drop a petition asking him to take the crown. 
Richard is crowned king on July the 6th, 1483, becoming Richard III. The two princes are seen playing in the grounds of the Tower of London, which was a royal residence at the time. And then there are no reported sightings of them after the summer of 1483. There are rumors as to what happened to them, including many that one or both of the princes were spirited away to safety, the younger of them surviving to make a claim to the throne in adulthood. And another rumor is that they were murdered with a number of people in the frame, including Richard III. But it's from these events that they have earned the moniker, the Princes in the Tower. Fast forward to 1674, and there are some renovations going on at the Tower of London, and workmen reputedly find some skeletons which, according to some reports, they lob onto the spoil heap until someone decides they must be the Princes and collects them up. Four years after this, on the orders of King Charles II, the bones are placed into an urn and interred in the wall of the Henry VII Lady Chapel in Westminster Abbey. It's important to point out that these are not the only skeletons found in the Tower of London, let alone that century. There's reports of some remains, possibly being those of one of the boys, being found in a turret, but these are eventually thought to be those of an ape that was part of the royal menagerie. Another set, again thought to be the boys, were apparently found in a walled-up chamber in the early part of that century. So let's fast forward again to 1933, and the bones in the urn are disinterred and examined by Lawrence Tanner, keeper of the monuments and librarian of Westminster Abbey, with William Wright, a renowned anatomist and three times president of the Anatomical Society of Great Britain and Ireland, and assisted by Dr. George Northcroft, an ex-president of the British Dental Association and leading authority on the dentition of children. If you read this report, you'll see that they do a long introduction to the history of the case, pretty much convinced that the princes were murdered by Richard III, and then start their analysis section. By page two of this section, they start to refer to the bones as being those of Edward V and his younger brother Richard, clearly biased as to the results before they've even completed the study. As such, it's not a rigorous scientific study as would be conducted these days. And to be fair to them, they simply didn't have the technology that's available to us today. So... If someone were to do a study today to answer the research question, are these the remains of the princes in the tower, what analysis could be done to help answer that question? There are three things here at the outset. The first is that these are human remains, and some of the analysis is destructive. Therefore, I think it would be imperative to take it step by step to minimize any such analysis, and only proceed to the point necessary to answer the question. The second is that this would have to be an academic research project with a view to the results being published in a peer-reviewed scientific journal. Having done the Richard III project and seen how that could go, I think it would be hugely important to make sure the project is not carried out in a sensationalist way. 
Indeed, I personally would not want a big press release to say the project was happening at the outset, as that, I found, simply led to a bit of a press frenzy regarding not only the research itself, but when any results would be announced, putting unnecessary pressure onto the whole thing. The importance here is to do a proper, measured, holistic, scientific study, and there shouldn't be any media agenda to that. It would need to be properly documented, as all research needs to be, and that could include footage to form a documentary. But I would be concerned if the documentary, and not the research project, was the main thrust of the whole thing. The final thing is that the analysis could only ever tell us if the evidence was consistent with these being the remains of the princes. It's likely it would not tell us if they were murdered, though if they are the princes, they obviously met with a premature end. And if so, who killed them? Getting this all out of the way, what could be done? Well, this breaks down into a number of steps, and after each step, an assessment would be made as to whether to proceed further. The first step is to do a thorough osteological analysis. We know the boys were thought to be around age 12 and 9 when they were supposedly done away with. Does the skeletal analysis fit this? Indeed, it's known that these are not complete skeletons and that the bones were retrieved from a spoil heap. So it would be important to start by determining if these are the remains of two individuals or more. Sexing skeletal remains of children is notoriously difficult, but osteological analysis would help to determine an age range of the age of death. To do this, we would want to look at the developmental state of the teeth and bones. For example, teeth tend to erupt in a fairly regular and known sequence within certain age ranges. Examination of the measurements and the development of the bones is also really useful for determining age range for age of death. It would also be important to compare measurements of the bones and analysis of the teeth with data sets from a similar time period and social status, if at all possible. To determine what time period the remains are from, we need radiocarbon dating, and this is the first piece of destructive analysis. However, it is a fairly crucial analysis, as it would tell us if these remains are even from the right time period. If the radiocarbon dates come back as being from the Roman or the Anglo-Saxon period, for example, then that answers the question, and there's no need to carry out any further destructive analysis to answer the research question. The project stops right there. If the radiocarbon dates don't fit, it's not the prince's. It's important to point out that radiocarbon dating doesn't give a precise date. It gives a date range, so radiocarbon dating is not something that could be used to determine a precise date of death, and thereby be used as evidence one way or the other in favor of whether princes died in the reign of Richard III or Henry Tudor, for example. A full analysis of the bones using modern forensic techniques to try and determine cause of death could be carried out. This would include examining the bones under direct light, as well as multispectral illumination, as well as whole-body post-mortem CT scanning. Any injuries or areas of interest could then be examined further with micro-CT scanning. 
If the dates were consistent with them being from the right time period, then there are other bits of analysis, both destructive, so would need to be minimized, that could help answer the question as to whether or not these are the remains of the princes. One of these is stable isotope analysis. Putting it simply, this looks at different forms, or isotopes, of the same element, such as carbon or nitrogen, for example. The different isotopes of carbon and nitrogen can tell us about a person's diet and therefore whether or not they seem to have a diet that suggests higher status. Oxygen and strontium isotopes give an indication of where someone has lived and so could be cross-referenced against the historical documentation about where the two princes lived to see if these two data sets are consistent with one another. Finally, genetic analysis could be carried out. And of course, this would rely on the DNA being of sufficient quality in order to carry out the research. There's a few things that could be done. The first is helping with sexing the skeletons by looking at the sex chromosomes. Females have two copies of what's known as the X chromosome, whereas males have only one X chromosome and a Y chromosome. Again, if this analysis showed they were definitely female, there's no need to continue further. If they looked to be genetically male, we could then look to see if the genetic data is consistent with these remains being the nephews of King Richard III. This could be done in two ways, by comparing the DNA from the skeletons with the DNA sequence of King Richard III, which is already known. The first way is using the Y chromosome. The Y chromosome is passed down through the male line, and so Richard III and Edward IV would have inherited the same Y chromosome type from their father, and Edward IV would have passed it down to his sons, Richard III's nephews. So the Y chromosome type from the remains in the urn should match that of Richard III. What about that pesky rumor about Edward being illegitimate? Well, we can get around that using DNA from the rest of the chromosomes. Say Edward IV really was Richard III's full brother. Then we would expect that Richard will share about 25% of his DNA in common between him and each of the princes. If Richard III and Edward IV were half-brothers, just sharing a mum and not a dad, then the princes would have a different Y chromosome type, but Richard would share about 12.5% of his DNA in common with the princes. Another segment of DNA that could be analyzed is mitochondrial DNA, which is passed down by a mother to her children. So, by comparing the mitochondrial DNA from the remains in the urn with a female line relative of Elizabeth Woodville, the prince's mother, to look for a match. Alongside this, Analysis of the DNA could throw up information as to likely cause of death. For example, if Yersinia pestis, the bacteria which causes the plague, is detected. Finally, a statistical analysis, similar to what we carried out with Richard III, could be used to put a statistical number on the likelihood of these being the remains of the princes in the tower. Alongside this, it would be hugely important to compile as detailed and comprehensive digital record as possible of both the research itself and the conclusions. So all the CT scans, measurements, DNA sequences, and so on. 
This would also include a video record and detailed photography, including macro photography, of areas of interest on the remains. Not only is this part of good research practice and scientific study, making it publicly available allows re- or further analysis by other researchers and minimizes the likelihood of anyone making requests to open the urn again in future. The outcome of this would be of great interest, both to historians and many of the general public. It's regularly voted as one of history's greatest mysteries. It's safe to say that a research project such as this would answer some questions, but not all. Indeed, it could raise new questions. It could well be that the radiocarbon dates at the outset show that these cannot be the princes, and therefore the research project ends there and then. It would then need to be decided whether the remains are returned to Westminster Abbey or reinterred elsewhere. It does tell us, though, that we still don't know what happened to the princes. Should the analysis show the evidence is consistent with these being the two princes, then it would make sense to reinter them in the urn in Westminster, with the mystery having been solved as to whether or not these are the boys. This would tell us, then, that the princes did meet with a premature end. It may not, however, likely tell us how, and certainly not by whose hand. That is a mystery that would still need to be solved.